welcome to Iconic, where we talk about all things 13th Age. I'm your host, JM, and with me as always are Nick and Mark. Hello. Hey. Uh, we have a great show for you this week, uh, but before we get into that, Nick, if you'd like to do our Patreon announcement, that would be great. Sure. We've got a couple of new patrons to our show. Uh, ben and Ulf have joined the ranks, and we are so glad that they are backing our show. And we are over the halfway mark before our first goal and are steadily working our way that direction. If you're interested in seeing some of the adventure sites that we've been exploring, actually seeing that in print and in a published form that you could download and use at your table, uh, definitely consider backing the show and becoming a patron, which you can do by going to patreon.com slash iconic podcast. Excellent. Well, this week we are covering an interesting topic that was given to us by one of our listeners, Carl, and he is actually going to be on here on the show with us. We are covering how to set up a campaign. So if you're a new GM, an experienced GM, and just want to hear some additional ways that both us here at Iconic and Carl has been setting up their games for 13th Age, this episode is for you. But first of all, uh, Carl, welcome. Thanks for coming on the show. So happy to be here. So before we get started, let's hear a little bit about you. How did you get into gaming and how did you get into 13th Age? Well, I started gaming in the late 70s with White Box D&D. So that was my sort of introduction. A friend, uh, friend's older brother was playing and and he'd, he, a friend said, you should check this out because you're in Lord of the Rings and all that stuff. And, and I got the books and I had no idea what to do <laughs> with them because they're like, I'd never seen it played before. And so, and they're pretty uh, arcane just by themselves. They really, really are. And so I uh, figured it out through talking with friend and, and uh, was often running. And as soon as AD and D books started coming out, I was like riding my bike down to the hobby store to pick them up. And <laughs> I played D and D all the way through high school and then moved on to sort of left D&D for a long while after that and in college was playing Rollmaster and Call of Cthulhu and Star Wars and three of my favorite games the old D6 Star Wars Mm. Mm. yeah first edition Star Wars are so much fun I love the the starting in the middle of the action that they do yeah Um, was spectacular and then Pendragon and Mm -hmm. Uh, Ars Magica and all kinds of stuff. I wrote a few supplements for Ars Magica back in the eighties. And, and then I got away. I went into the work after grad school and stepped away from role-playing for a while. I jumped back in with uh, story and narrative driven games. Cause you could play them as one shots. Cause I didn't have time to GM and played a bunch of, you know, fiasco and uh, dungeon world, things like that. And, now that I've got a bit more time on my hands, I've, I've returned to role-playing with a fervor, and I've been running Dungeon World for my son and his friends. I do masks for my college-age daughter and her friends, and, and now I'm doing a 13th Age campaign well, with my friends. So what helped you bridge that gap between all the, the D&D and all, and all of your other RPGs into 13th Age? A close friend that we would talk about a lot of RPGs and we're buying and reading them and, you know, a lot more than we were playing. And he mentioned that this was coming out and that I had to look at that if I was looking for a long form fantasy game. And I, this was maybe a couple months after the the core rule book came out and I picked it up and read it and having, I, I tried fourth edition, wasn't a big fan, especially with my, my kids that were younger at the time. And but 13th age seemed right up my alley because of the, I loved the sort of 
narrative story elements they pulled into it. And I also, I really, really love the setting. The setting really is sort of super Vancean in my mind, mm -hmm. uh, really evocative and the bones of just a, a whole lot of great stories. And that's, that's what was really appealing to me. Well, excellent. So I feel like we should take just a quick second aside. And uh, I know this episode won't release until December, but we're recording it at the beginning of November. And a couple of weeks ago, I know you mentioned, you mentioned Pendragon. Yeah. Carl. Yeah. Greg Stafford has passed. And I know that the man was, was a, a great and wonderful gaming shaman and to gift Glorantha and Pendragon and all of that stuff to the world. I just wanted to say, I was lucky enough to meet him a couple of times and he always just treated everyone as if you were the only person talking to him at that time. So he will be missed by, by a lot of people, but also by us and iconic and yeah. Yeah. I, I had the pleasure of meeting him once and I remembered just what a, what a, what a strong personality he was, mm -hmm. how, how very much he was just Greg Stafford. Yeah. That, that seems, that seems fair. I've met him at every Gen Con I went to, and this was the year that we ran into him while my wife was there and she's like, get a picture with him. I'm like, Oh, you know what? That's, that'd be cool. I'll get a picture with Greg. And so I actually have a picture with Greg from this year. And oh, that's nice. Yeah. So wherever you're at, Greg, we'll keep gaming for you. Let's get into campaign creation. So this was an idea that Carl actually sent into us, and we've been talking about it for a couple of months at this point. Thirteenth mm -hmm. Age, as as you kind of mentioned, Carl, is very Vancean, and Rob and Jonathan have used the term half-baked, and it's kind of a term that we've really latched onto at Iconic, and that's not in a bad way. Like, they give you just enough to get your imagination going and to take the t players and the GM at that table to kind of complete the, the process of getting your campaign going. So you kind of came to the table with an idea of talking about how to get games set up. So let's start with why, why was this a topic you were passionate about sharing with people? I was passionate about it because I've always struggled with creating sort of longer form campaigns. Like one shots are pretty simple. You can just set up something and go and have a good time with it. But, but um, I always struggled with coming up with like a, a whole world and or a big long campaign arc having just been through the process and figured out on my own and with, with help and from cobbling together lots of things. I sort of did this for 13th age and I thought it would help other people who don't have that that gift of of being able to improv their way through a big campaign like some people do because because the sense i get is that there are some people who are just super comfortable just sitting down at the table have their players show up and just go for weeks or months without a lot of um, i won't say a lot of effort but i without planning or anything else and i was always sort of lost by that and so um, having having figured it out on my own to to get this campaign off the ground that I'm running now, thought it'd be useful to share how I did that. Awesome. I would just say those who seem that they can just do it off the cuff week after week are just really good at tap dancing. And at the end of the session, you're like, I just pulled off another one. <laughs> <laughs> 
I do a lot of tap dancing, I, I feel like, but that's because you guys throw me a lot of crazy curveballs. And that's that was one of the things I was going to bring up was when I first started running games, you know, you played for a long time, then you're finally like, okay, I, th- I think I can do this. And I planned every detail, spent hours on it just to have the players go left turn. And I learned quickly, have a plan, but don't get too detailed because the players will do what the players want to do. And if you try to shove them back on the line, it just becomes an unfun game. But have your outline, but don't don't waste so much time detailing that. Because the players always do something different. Oh, yeah. You know? Well, was it in our Numenera game? Uh, we had a couple of new players who had never played role-playing games really before in a in a tabletop setting. And they kept going, how do you plan for all of this? How did you know we were going to do this? I'm like, oh, I'm just that good <laughs> as I'm frantically like, don't look behind the curtain. I think there was even one session you took all the three by five cards that you had planned with and just like threw them over your shoulder. Oh, yeah. I have probably two more Numenera campaigns worth of stuff that never made it into the first Numenera campaign. But so there's a couple of ways that we kind of outlined on how to create um a campaign, and we we came up with three. Uh, there's uh, we're going to talk about all three of them: top down, bottom up, and then Carl. I, I kind of gave your your method the stew method. Is that a is that an acceptable term for that? Sure, I think it's fair to call it a stew. All I right, like stew. Yeah. I do like yeah. I do like a good hearty stew. I tend to be as a GM a top down sort of planner for a campaign. So what's that mean? Oh yeah, so basically I I start with the I, I start with kind of the 10,000 foot view, filling out, you know, things as we kind of go along. Um, Mark, you use a conspiramid from Knights Black Agents in a very similar manner, where you start with the, the end goal of the campaign of the conspiracy and kind of trickle it all down. Yep. This is more of a world builders or campaign builders format, I guess is the way I would say it. It helps me improv because I... By doing top-down, by starting with, hey, here's what I feel like the general arc of the campaign is going to be. And with 13th Age, you got to do a lot more improving. This works. You know, this comes from all of my second edition D&D GMing days. But I get a good sense of the world and the players and the NPCs and the arcs and the factions. So once I do all of my pregame prep, and that's usually before the game even hits the table... I don't do as much during the actual campaign because I have the whole world mapped out in my head. Bottom up is where you would just start with a single town, not really knowing where everything else is going. And as the players kind of expand out, kind of start developing as it goes forward from there. From a writer's perspective, it's the difference between a writer who plans out and outlines, that would be top down, and bottom out is kind of a discovery writer like what's in my pants today oh it's the dark tower you know Stephen King talks about how he never really knew what was going to happen next in the dark tower because he was discovering it as much as we were those are kind of two ways to set up a campaign both have their advantages and disadvantages Uh, Mark you said that you've used the top down before yeah the first world well the very first thing I ran was Dragonlance for D&D so I ran it. It's already set up. So I just kind of ran it, kind of got my feet wet. So, okay, now I need to do my own. And I took a Tolkien map with all the names, but I just made all those countries my own. Kind of came up with political 
structures and who was friends, who was foes, you know, where the monsters live. You know, you have to have your orcs and goblins and where they're prevalent, where the dwarves, where the elves. And then, so that has my world. And then I just took different adventures and put them in places and kind of developed mm-hmm. it. And then you just start running with characters and let them take their left turn, right turns. Yeah. And I quickly learned, don't just throw away all your planning just because they took the left turn. It's like, oh, okay, well, you took a left turn, fine. I'll just take this encounter and move it down the road, and it'll come in later. Right. And you won't even know that you ruined my day. And we'll get back there. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's the thing. Order 66, which is a, another great podcast, they tend to do more Star Wars stuff. They have a— I'd hope. <laughs> they, yeah, you know, with a name like Order 66. They they talk about encounter building in a, in very broad strokes where you come up with a scene— and you come up with some variables, but that you can reskin however you want. So the group doesn't get involved with the kobolds. Well, the next time they come to a a scene where you would have them fighting something that's kobold equivalent, you already have the encounter prepped as just a like a, a Lego block that you can set down in the game. Just keep the kobolds. Just keep the kobolds. Doesn't matter. You can ramp them up. Oh, uh, man. The kobolds are great. If you haven't read Tucker's Kobolds, again, just going to toss that out there. GMing 101. Learn how to scare <laughs> your players with, with kobolds. Now, we're going to turn this over to Carl here for the stew method because as much as I love top-down planning, 13th age being half-baked... That's my, my, I want to bake the thing a lot more than, than, uh, some groups maybe, maybe want to approach it with, because there is a lot more narrative hooks that the players bring and get to incorporate into the story. So Carl, do you mind sharing, let's get into the stew method, kind of how you approach the setup and then we'll go into ingredients next. So the setup that, that I use really is, is, the like the the things that go into the stew is that is that what you're interested in? Well, yeah. Just how, why why do you call your method the stew method? Let's let's start there. Well, because um, I'm basically taking all these different pieces from the Dragon Empire setting, you know, the character flags, all of the you know, some some pre-made all sorts of stuff, and I'm putting them in this big stew pot and mixing them around <laughs> until something starts coming out. Right. And that's, that, that's delicious. That tastes good. Right. And, and just like a stew, like you, you taste it and you maybe play your first session or even two, and then you sort of add some more of this and a little bit more of that, and you sort of keep going. So it has a structure. You're not changing it from like a, <laughs> a beef stew to a, to a curry or something, but you might like throw some different spices in and you, and you can change it up as you go. Um, so it has more structure than sort of a uh, sort of a complete improv setting. It has a backbone that sort of gives it a nice framework to hang everything on. Now, do you taking you you taking a lot of ingredients right into the campaign planning, uh, if you will, mm-hmm. straight from your players? Yeah, exactly. So, so one of the most important things to do, I think, is is that you know the characters have these flags that they're just waving at the GM. Um, telling you what they want their story to be about mm-hmm. and what they're interested in. Right. So, so it's like, it, it, and they have a ton of great character flags. They've got, you know, the one unique things, there are backgrounds, there's icon relationships, there's any backstory that the characters have come up with. And they're, they're basically broadcasting to you, the GM, like, tell me about this. You mm-hmm. know, if, if someone says, 
you know, the, the half-orc barbarian who is a pit fighter in Drakenhall, right, is is on the run from the three, then he wants the three to chase them. Right. If one one of the the cleric in the party is like the one guy in the world who knows the name of the forgotten and and as soon as he learned it, the rest of his monastery was burned to the ground by mysterious forces. So it's like, oh, you want to tell that story? We we gotta dig into that in the campaign. I like I like to to look at Thirteenth Age as so in other in other games, you you as the GM you bait hooks and you leave them in the water to see what the what the players latch onto and want to run with. And in Thirteenth Age, because of backgrounds and one unique things and icons. You basically give the players three hooks and have them put them in their own mouths before the game even starts. You just have to attach the lines to them, like the the fish come pre pre hooked for you in Thirteenth Age. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and you don't have to. You can still have things that you dangle in front of them that mm-hmm. they may or may not take. But but these things, like they're just shouting to you, tell me, I want to tell this story. You know, this is what I want the world and the adventures and things like that to be about. So all of those, the character bits are stews. And then also, like, I'm not particularly great at making up my own adventures. I love riffing on other people's stuff, inspiration from other adventures. And so the last element that goes in the stew or like just getting all the adventures I can from whatever sources, 13th Age or D&D or wherever, and and sort of... uh, me being a sort of analytic-y type, I will throw them all in a big spreadsheet and sort of make flags for them all and be able to sort them in different ways mm-hmm. and and just see how those merge with the stories my players want to tell and with things that are going on with the icon relationships or with the, the 13th Age Empire in general. All right, so I've got to digress for a quick second. Have you taken a look at adventurelookup.com? Uh, so Matt Coville. What is that? Oh, Matt Coville has put together a a website that you can sort adventures by tags, by publishers. They're mainly D&D adventures, which are super easy to convert to to 13th age. But I just mm-hmm. went to there. So if you, you know, if you go to adventurelookup.com, the first one that popped up is, you know, B2 Keep on the Borderlands. It tells you the edition, <laughs> the setting, the levels the their environmental tags so you can just say man i really need a swamp adventure and put it in there and it's all co- user content driven so there's no actual adventures there it just helps you find something new that you may not even have known existed we should get oh, that's amazing of, we should get a lot of 13th age fans on adventurelookup.com and start putting the 13th age adventures in there sure sure yeah as, as a as a gm i steal stuff from all kinds of I've taken Star Wars adventures and made them into D&D adventures. Mm-hmm. It's just a story. And what, what's, yeah, what's the hook? What's the red herring? What's the outcome? Right. Well, and I think if you go back to the, the 13th Age core rule book, you know, the character creation checklist on page 29, the first thing is GM input. You know, the setting is designed to be customized. So I think it's it's on the GM to say, hey, here's the kind of stew I'm looking at. Whether it's, we're playing a seven icon game here. You know, what seven icons do we want to do? Or, hey, you know what? I really love the way 13th Age does Undead. So I'd like to do a campaign about X. And coming together and as a group, putting boundaries on your creativity. I think bounded creativity allows for a lot of really interesting developments. That's what I liked when we did the Book of Ages. Mm-hmm. 
get your group together, thinking about what you want to run, have the group run through that whole scenario where you create what happened in past ages and it creates a story for you and they've been part of it. And then like, okay, yeah, I'm going to play a dwarf thief. Mm -hmm. And then the next session, create characters and get their input and see what, what, you know, how they want to go. And I think it's important to even just go through that mental process of what kind of game do I want to run? Because if you're not excited about the game that you're going to be running as a GM, then you're not going to you're going to end up burning out. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to be able to portray excitement to the players and get that um, them to buy into it as well. I'm glad that that's that GM input is there first and foremost because mm-hmm. you do need to have that in mind when you're going through this. Now, Mark, you said for GM input, you like an outline to get things going, big events to kind of talk about big events. That's why I like with. that pyramid. Of okay, here's. Can you explain the conspiracy? It looks like a pyramid. It's, just, it's a like a little flow chart, bunch of boxes connected, and you have your ultimate at the apex of what's happening, and then it drops down. And if you read Knights Black Agents, which I recommend, it's a fun game. You have have like you know national, international levels down to the local level, which is the base of the pyramid. To okay, your local bandit. So why did they attack the caravan? Well, the next tier up is you know, the corrupt religious leader, depending on what game you're playing. That's backing things for whatever reason. Up to and like mine for Thirteenth Age, I've got. I'm not Thirteenth Age for. Um, I'm using it for the Dark Eye. Same thing. Bandits and orc raids leading up to the mid level as well. There's some demons manipulating nobles to the ultimate baddie that they have to face or stop, hopefully. Um, so that kind of gives you an idea of this is what's going on. Like you said, you can think of in 13th Age, you know, is, okay, the, the Orc Lord's going to invade. That's the big thing that's going to happen in this campaign. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of break it down into other pieces and other levels and little hooks. And then you get the player input, and then I'm always shifting and, mm-hmm. and adjusting from there as they, as they do stuff, well, discover stuff, or... As we're playing a session, and I get this idea, and I quick take a note, like, okay, we got to go do this. Well, I think that's a really good point, and um, we're going to switch in over here to player flags. But I think as the GM, especially with 13th Age, even just some of the rules like, hey, at the end of the session, ask your players, what what things that happened in this session do we want to make a reoccurring pillar of the campaign there's a lot more player dm interaction where the game wants you the designers want you to say hey be willing to pivot mark and i've had many conversations about this if you want to plan every aspect of a campaign write a novel because putting players in a campaign (laughs) means what you have planned will not no plan survives encounter with the party especially in 13th age flexibility is key but carl you mentioned not just gm input but player input and you use the term flags that the players are waving in in the gm's faces why don't you talk about those for a little bit kind of how you see those how you've used those in your games well, it's a, it's a common sort of thing that's used in a lot of these sort of story-driven RPGs that have come out come out like in the last ten years or so, where you know, like like Burning Wheel has beliefs and instincts mm-hmm. um, as his mouse guard and stuff like that. And so, I view this as like like we're, when when they're making their characters and they're making these choices about icon relationships and backgrounds and when unique things they're declaring to you and the other players what is interesting to them right this is like i'm interested in the lich king or the three or whoever it is or the the high druid and if you ignore that as a gm 
you're making something that your players are not going to be interested in and they won't be as connected. Mm -hmm. So really listening to that and, and helping flesh that out because it like not all players figure it all out to start with, right? Like a lot of my players, it took a couple sessions before they'd sort of settled into what their characters were and what all of these things meant, right? So like one character is a, is a known druid and she fell asleep when the last hydruid died and just woke up when the new hydruid started coming to power. And it's like, oh, <laughs> like, like, and she's like, and, but I don't know anything about that time. Right. Um, and then we'll play some more and she'll be like, you know, my conflicted relationship with the, the, the Prince of Shadows is because I stole something of his. It may have been in that previous age and I lost it, you know? And it's like, okay, like all of that stuff is, are, are things you get to sort of work with, right. And think about. And so like, and because of that, that mix of things, like in the current campaign I'm running, several of the characters have things that are, say they're, they have connections to a previous age. Uh, I've, I have one character who used to be a sort of a legendary magical spirit that was wielded by a great sorcerer that became human or became a drow in this age. And so I can work with those icons and this idea, oh, so we have a previous age. These characters were all around in the previous age. Oh, we have this cleric with a, with a, a forgotten god. Maybe he was active in this previous mm -hmm. age. You know, like, how does all that work together? I don't know, but let's find out. And, I, and then I'll ask, like, uh, and, and, I, and I poke at, I don't poke at them, but I'm like, tell me more about this. Like, like if, if a character has something that is interesting, like one character was like, I can see ghosts. And we didn't really do anything with that for a while, but then a couple of sessions in, I was like, you know, based on a podcast that you guys gave was like, think of like, these are really one unique things in the whole world. So if she says she can see ghosts, that means that no one else can right. in this world. <laughs> and so I was like, hey, hey, character, player, what does that mean? Like, does everyone else know this? Do you hide this fact? Like, when did you learn you could find this out? Or when did you could see ghosts? And do and the ghosts how? know? Do they yeah, get attracted exactly. to her because I can communicate with you? You can see me? Right. I don't want to be dead. Yeah. So, so all of those things lead, give you these pieces that I drop in that stew and sort of think about and move over and look at adventures and other things and try and bring them all together somehow into, into a sort of a cohesive framework that I can use for a campaign. Well, not to push the stew metaphor too far, but, <laughs> you know, I'm hungry. Well, I know I'm hungry now too, but there always comes a point where when the bowl is put in front of somebody, they have the choice of eating it as it is or seasoning it to their own tastes. And that's a little bit of what these player flags are. Hey, we've created this thing. Now, if I push it back to you to say, why, why is it that you see ghosts? It's up to you to say, well, how much do I want to add this back into the campaign? Mm -hmm. Because Rob mm -hmm. talks about how some of the players may just pick out one unique thing and really never want to do a whole lot more with it than just the surface level. Right. I, I really encourage you to like give the players space to learn it and not push them if mm -hmm. they haven't figured it out yet. Yeah. You know, give them some time, but do come back to it and, and don't don't give up on those one unique things, having some depth and approach it in different ways. It may not be 
Like they may not be ready to talk about it right now or figure it out, but, or maybe you have ideas and you can say, what, what if it was kind of like this or like this or, or, or give them a couple of options. Mm-hmm. Like, like in one of your recent podcasts, you said, you know, give them, give them two or three options plus infinity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that, that can help. Well, yeah. and just even, even hearing about your campaign and I would, I would say to GMs, part of the great thing about 13th age is that all of these things do come together in unusual and unexpected ways. And if you have a lot of players who are throwing things back to previous ages, if you can find a way for, to tie them all together, I mean, one of the most successful fantasy series is about how things keep happening in cycles. And so maybe there is a reason why all of these people are throwing back to a previous age and they're all now together again. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of, you know, Wheel of Time, I think of Exalted has an, a similar theme that runs through it that all of this has happened before and all of this will happen again, sort of a mentality. Once you kind of figure out how you want to put your campaign together, whether you are the mastermind top down, whether you are the cook, whether you are exploring the setting just as much as your players are, there also comes a point where the campaign starts to have goals. And in my mind, there are really two kinds of goals that develop in a campaign. Global goals, which are really NPC driven and personal goals, which are PC driven. Um, The easiest way for me in 13th age to come up or put in front of the players a global goal that gets mechanical buy-in right off the bat, I'll use mechanical buy-in as my term, is a limited icon. As opposed to saying, here's 13 to pick from, here's seven, here's five. You know, here, here as the GM, I'm helping to narrow down, put some boundaries, get some focus, because I really want the Lich King the three and the diabolist to be a core focus of at least some of the stories going forward. If you got four players, each with three points of icon relationships, and you have five icons, chances are all five of them are going to be tied to each of your players somehow. And that's a great way for the GM to set a tone for the campaign without really giving too much of the mystery away if there is a mystery to be given away at all. Saying, hey, here are the five or seven icons that we're dealing with. Now make your characters with those in mind. That's going to already just send players racing down the, the ideas of, well, I, I, maybe I hadn't considered the High Druid as an icon. But now let me think about how I would tie this into my character. Well, then you get a completely different, one unique thing instead of backgrounds from that player than you would have if the Crusader was the icon they were looking at. And have you used this in a campaign? The limited icon? Mm-hmm. I have. Rob and Jonathan did a article a couple of years back on a seven icon. Was it Jonathan? I think it was part of the 13th Age Monthly. Mm-hmm. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. And... Yeah, I've done I've done five icon games where I've said, you know, I, I'll build a little star of how all of the icons are related to each other and present that star to my players and say, all right, here are the five icons that we're going to do for this. We're going to look at for this campaign. You have to have at least two of your icon relationship points tied up in these five. The other one can be someone you want to bring in. That's fine with me. But for what I'm looking at and kind of what the, the idea that I have kind of percolating in my head, these are kind of the core five that I'm looking at. And I have found that narrowing it down 
does kind of help the start of character creation. And as I said, backgrounds and one unique things and icon relationships get a little bit more focused and people start going, well, if I've got two points with the Crusader and Nick's got one point and Mark's got one point and Carl's got one point, now we're all tied to the Crusader. What does that mean for the group? It's not good. Well, you know, <laughs> or maybe it is. Maybe it's really good. It all depends on how you guys play it, right? <laughs> but having that, uh, that creating that star of the five icons or the seven icons or whatever, that, that would be a, a helpful tool regardless of whether you're doing a, a top-down planning approach or a bottom-up planning mm-hmm. approach. Uh, because you could just say this is the foundation for that we are going to create a story together. And these are the ones you pick from. This is where we're starting. Okay, you're in this village. What are you going to do? And or even a see stew. What happens. It's, it's the pentagram that you put your stew pot in before the sacrifices start. <laughs> I mean, wait, am I allowed to say that? Has the satanic panic ended? It's close enough to Halloween. I think we're good. That's right. Excellent. But on the flip side, and I, and I think most of the great campaigns that I can think of having been a part of either as the GM or the player has been a a good balance of a global goal that the group can lash onto and move towards and personal goals that each individual player gets spotlight time for because Mm -hmm. it's not just me playing a game. It's all of us playing a game. And that goes whether I'm a player or a GM, all of us are more important than one of us. And so We've talked a little bit about setting up global goals, especially in 13th Age. Icons, and usually what what I like about the star format is that each icon has two relationships to two other ones. And it's very easy on a sheet of 8.5 by 11, you draw your little star, you put your four icons, and then you have nice long lines of what is the plot that connects these two people are these two icons. So you know how they're going to relate before you even like start planning your game. Just get five of the 13th age icon dice and just roll them. And there you go. You have an instant campaign and whatever comes up. You get doubles. One of them is obviously the Prince of Shadows. But 13th age, as we said, has a lot of player driven opportunities and flags and hooks. So Carl, you mentioned bringing fronts in from Dungeon World. Mm-hmm. In case our audience has no experience with Dungeon World, why don't you explain what fronts are and how a GM can use those? Well, fronts are basically a tool in Dungeon World to that, that's how that's a lot of Dungeon World is built on the idea of very little GM prep and and using but having this structure for what what things are in motion in the world to behind the scenes that the player gets to interact with. Uh, and so in Dungeon World, the idea is you, you pick two or three different bad guys or forces that are going to oppose the players or mess with the players in different ways. Let's say you have uh, an evil sorcerer that is coming into power and is wanting to make everyone bow down before the will. And then you have like a, an orc horde that is migrating to uh, for their one every 50 year, you know, place to to their homeland uh for a feast or something like that right um and so you, you identify these things that are happening and then you you list out like what are their goals what are they trying to do so the orc horde is trying to go from point a to point b and and feast upon the uh site of their ancient homeland or something 
um, and then maybe go marauding and then go back. But you you sort of write down the steps that they're going to do. They're going to do. They're going to go from here to here. They're going to gather the sacrifices they need, and then they're going to go here and have their big party. And then they're going to raid a bit and then go home, right? Or you're going to have the the evil sorcerer. Step one is he's going to find the ancient tome. Then he has to locate the summoning stones. Then he's going to gather his cultist minions. Then he's going to so on and so on and so on, right? Ending in him opening the great void gate that's going to destroy the world. And so this gives you sort of the list of the bad guys and what they are going to be doing in your campaign. And ideally, they're all intersecting with each other and with the players in interesting ways. So the the orc migration route is right on the path of wherever the players are. So that's a place that it can happen. Or it's running right on top of where the the evil cultist and sorcerer are doing their big summoning thing, right? And so as you're as you lay these things out, whether the players are interacting with them directly or not, you get to leave this flavor in the world as clues for them to follow. You these provide hooks for them, right? And you can be as sort of overt or as subtle as you want to be with it. So that's what that's what sort of campaign fronts are. So like in in my campaign, I started by saying, hey, icons, what's the state of all the player important icons in this thing? Is the Archmage powerful or weak or what is he going for? What is he afraid of? Same with the three and the Lich King and the High Elf and the Elf Queen, whatever, or the High Druid. And I sort of said, what is the state of each of those uh, important icons of the players? And, and how do we make them... Uh, what are what are their goals? And if they have their way, what's going to happen? And also, like, what are they afraid of? Um, what are, what is what is? Oh man, the archmage is afraid that he is not as powerful as previous ages of archmage, and he can't hold it together, and the world will fall apart into chaos. That's what he's afraid of, right? What is the lich king going after? What is he afraid of? And then that sort of laid the groundwork for me to say, okay, if the players do nothing at all. Here are these really big picture sweeping things that are going to happen in the world, step by step, right? And then those are the fronts that then the players get to sort of interact with. And then I'm layering sort of adventures on top of that. Using the ones that you find in the places that you need them and reskinning them as necessary. Yeah, exactly. So, so for example, like I chose to use the Strangling Sea, which is an amazing first level adventure to start off with. Um, because it's so different than any other starting adventure I've ever seen. There's no dungeons or anything else. And based upon the player's icon relationships and the state that the icons are in right now, I could say, okay, like they're being sent to do this by the High Druid. Half the party's being sent by the High Druid, half the party's being sent by the Elf Queen. They happen to fall in together, <laughs> you know, right. and, and find themselves doing the same thing. And opposing them are the three because of this other icon relationship. Yeah, that's also one of the strengths of the Wreck of Wolven's Glory is that you can reskin it based off of which icons you pick going into it. Well, don't tell my players, but I'm planning on using that down the road <laughs> <laughs> just for that reason. Uh, yeah, because you can reskin it for those icons. And then when they got back from that adventure, I could sort of make the finale of that, that sort of ambush at the end be flavored heavily on what was going on in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, 
And I know like, for example, I want them to, I'm going to, I'm steering them towards the stone thief. As soon as they get high enough level, there's level. never a high enough level. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing that with, well, Mark and Nick, you're listening, you're here. And I know that two of our other players listen, but you guys are almost level four and you know, that's coming. Like that's just, Oh, you set the the seed for that in, in the very first session. I, yeah, I've been waiting for it. The the look of despair that just crossed Nick's face was <laughs> uh, that's going to keep me going for months. I know I'm going to lose an arm. <laughs> there owlbears in there or something? Yeah. No, Nick uh, just loses uh, arms. Nick's, just, oh, Nick's, Nick's character famous. just loses arms. Like, he's famous. He's infamous for losing arms. Yeah. It doesn't matter what system, yeah. what genre. Yeah. Uh, especially now that he's been trying to get a two-handed fighter in multiple <laughs> games to work, and he just keeps being one hand short. Well, it's right. like a crazy meta curse. It is. Yes. It is. Uh, some people have cursed dice. Nick has cursed character arms. sheets. Yeah, that should be your one unique thing next time. I, I have one arm. I think I'm or with that. or you have three arms. That way, when you lose one, you're fine. I'm thrive green. That's right. Wrapping this up, campaign prep doesn't end. Once the game starts, no. there are many things that go into keeping the campaign fresh in your mind, fresh in your players' minds, keeping the world alive. And part of that is a session prep. You may be somebody who plans, like when I run the Dark Eye, it's, a, it's almost one-to-one for me. If I'm going to run a four-hour session, I'm going to spend four hours planning just because of the nature of the game and the story that I'm telling in there. With 13th Age, because so much more is pushed onto the players or given to the players, I guess, to interact with, there's a lot less session prep going on. At the end of the session, we talked a little bit about asking your players for the vote, right? What's one thing from this session that we want to see as a reoccurring theme? And I think I've talked a little bit about this before. The biggest prep aid that I have is what I call the consequence list. At the end of every session, I write down everything that would most likely have a consequence in world. You killed somebody. You pissed someone off. In helping someone, you've obviously hurt someone else. Um, Nick has given random cursed items to NPCs. Also something that happens in a lot of my <laughs> games. A character in our Shadowrun game keeps waking up with no ammo and blood on their hands and decides not to tell anyone about it. Like These are things that will have... <laughs> massive consequences in the game and it's it's very easy if you have that consequence list to just go oh you guys pissed off this wizard and his bound death slot well okay in this next fight the death slot shows up it makes it a little worse for you guys but now it's oh hey the world is alive we're not just fighting x but this thing from our character's past that we did showed up I love it. And I think that's one of the things, and, and they explain that in, in 13th Age, where your one unique thing, don't try to get something that's going to give me a bonus in combat. Make it an interesting story hook, because it really helps your GM when you've got that one unique thing. Like, I just looked at the game that you're running my once a month. I got my Berserker. Mm-hmm. His one unique thing is I'm from the age of the Corsair. So that throws you a hook that he's from a previous age, very specific, That'll probably come into play sometime. And when it happens and and you can say, hey, that's because my character, you get a smile on your face. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always work out because sometimes people die. But I think it's fun when you when you throw those hooks out and it comes back in that living world. It's not just, I'm the only son of the Lich King. Yeah. Okay, if it never comes up for all 10 levels and you're done, you're like, oh, 
Yeah, it wasn't that special, was it? Right. Well, then there's always that that glorifying aha moment where I've done these certain things and now I'm realizing how it has come back and bitten me. You know, I, I rec- recognize the, the actual consequence of my action. And especially if it does tie back into my one unique thing or one of my backgrounds, you know, if, if you upset somebody and it comes, you've come to find out later that the person you upset is also from that age or mm-hmm. they're, they're still a part of a faction from that age and you unknowingly upset someone that you shouldn't have and you recognize you connect the dots back to that um, your one unique thing um, and, and merging trying to merge that that consequence list in with all of the hooks that the players are giving you it's also a lot of fun having played in jams games is six seven sessions down the road when something happens and he goes it's all thanks to mark you know giving the poison drink to the gnome in that bar and the table looks at you like dude what <laughs> and yeah. they have no idea that you did that. That's a lot of fun. Or or that the one character has been carrying around the canteen of demon blood since like... <laughs> and then it explodes when you die because yeah. a Cyclops hits you for a critical hit. Well, they loved it though. In our campaign, a couple characters have sort of light fingers and that's... Uh, <laughs> That, that's a that's a good consequence to come back and bite them. You got to make that note yeah. of everything they take. Doesn't matter if it's a silver spoon because it might have been your grandmother's from four ages ago, and now you're going to hunt down mm-hmm. that person. That's right. Because the person you stole it from just happens to be the chief agent in that city for the Prince of Shadows. Yeah. Right. And and even uh, go, like as a consequence, it's also it's not just consequences, but it's like things that just the players have done. Like mm-hmm. like one of the one of the players in our campaign picked up. He loved these wicked daggers that were from uh, an assassin that was trying to hunt them down. And and he kept them, and they weren't magical or anything else, but he kept them, and he kept bringing them up <laughs> session after session. And so finally, like last time, I was like, he, he used them in a really dramatic way, and I was like, you know, he's telling me, this is another version of a flag, he's telling me that he wants these daggers to be special somehow. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, you just use them to kill your first you know, person with them, they reveal themselves to be magic now. Yep. You know, they're bloodthirsty. You, you should also make um, them a symbol of the Assassin's Guild, yeah. and they don't like that a non-assassin has them. Uh-huh. That we- sounds perfect. <laughs> Use that. <laughs> you're welcome. To all of Carl's Player players, X. you're welcome. <laughs> We've GM'd once or twice. Any final thoughts on campaign prep, on building a campaign, on getting player input and buy-in from a campaign. Just one thought on getting player buy-in and continuing to get that player buy-in is I think it's a good idea to, you know, especially if you're going to be talking to them and getting those hooks initially at that session zero and going into the first half dozen sessions that, you know, a couple months into the gameplay, um, you get 20, 30 sessions under your belt um, to come back around and ask them, how are you feeling with your personal arcs? Um, Are you feel like we're touching points on everything in your backgrounds or your one unique things? Um, Are you being engaged? What, what do you feel like we're missing? And just kind of get them to kind of rebuy in and help them recognize that you are trying to weave their individual pieces into the the greater whole. Right. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. think you did that for our Numenera game. And I remember uh, coming back and asking a question of, you know, where, where do I see my player going from this point? Right. And I just remember thinking at that point is like, I've, I'm all of a sudden I'm reinvested into this, this campaign. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would just say if you're a player be involved in your campaign. And if you're a GM or a new GM or thinking about being a GM, just go for it. Take the book, take the setting as it is, 
start playing it and ideas will come and it's okay if it goes off the rails and you change your story of what's going to happen. Believe me, the players have no idea. Unless you mm-hmm. give them all your notes, they will have no idea that it went off the rails and you're suddenly in Glitterhog and looking for X. They'll have fun. As long as they're having fun, I think it's, it's good. Get the experience and just go for it. Yeah. Uh, any final and, thoughts, Carl? Yeah. And, and I was just going to say, like, if you're a GM that is nervous about looking at a big blank slate and, and have your players looking back at you expectantly and, and wanting greatness, like, like, don't be afraid to like, there's so many great adventures out there and using some of these techniques, I think you can really string together a series of great things by mashing things up, by changing them up. Like, like yep. I'd, I'd, I strongly recommend strangling. You see is a great starting point because it gets them grounded in the world, but away kind of from it to start with while they're figuring out who they are. And then once they get back to civilization, you can take them wherever you want to go. You can look at, look at, uh, a race to starport, look at uh, descent into the underworld. Like there's so many good things that you can rework and revamp using some of the tools we talked about to, to make it easy for you. I mean, I know for me, the first couple of years that I DM, I DM published stuff. There's oh, yeah. nothing wrong with that. Like that nope. is, that is a, like making it your own, but having those, those outlines, those adventures to go with, man, that, that has some of the greatest memories of, of my time in gaming. Still use them yeah. today. Yep. Well, Carl, thank you so much for both the idea for this episode and for being willing to call in with such a time disparity. And, uh, <laughs> no problem at all. And uh, I, I hope that we can continue chatting and maybe have you on again. It was future. so great to be on the show, and, and thanks so much. Our pleasure. Well, Carl, uh, thank you. This was a lot of fun. It was, a, it was a whole lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for accepting this. Remember, you can support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash iconic podcast, or you can use our Amazon referral link, which is found in the show notes to do online shopping. Well, you've been listening to the iconic podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, you can contact us at iconic at gmail.com or call and leave a voicemail at 720-924-1706. And be sure to check out iconicpodcast.com for news, updates, and new episodes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>